The scripture reading for tonight is from the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verses 15 to 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hand and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. That passage, can everybody hear me okay? Mm-hmm. That passage ended with the words that are right there at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, which opens with the theme of Jesus saying, follow me. What had just happened, what had just happened at Easter, is we know that Judas had handed over Jesus to be crucified. And Peter who had boasted that even if all the others fail you, I will die with you. I will never, ever forsake you. And Jesus said, Peter, before the sun even rises, tomorrow morning, you will have denied me three times. It's one of the most famous moments in Scripture. We all have, we all have promised with our mouths and failed to deliver you can understand somewhat how Peter feels. Before I go any further, I want to recommend a book to you. You know that the guy who has had the worst reputation in Scripture is Judas Iscariot. There has been a debate from the beginning on Judas, and whether he is as bad as he's made out to be, whether he's the most evil scoundrel on earth, or whether he simply fulfilled the will of God, delivered over a lamb, an atoning sacrifice. If you want to see a fine, fine example of just good, solid biblical studies, get this book. It's called Judas Iscariot Revisited and Restored by Ivan Rogers. It's about a decade old. And Rogers is just a Bible dude, a pastor Bible dude, just does his homework. Read that little essay. And uh, I think you've come away blessed by that. Peter had denied Christ. And here we see a special appointment, a special meeting that Jesus has arranged to meet Peter face to face and three times ask him. For each time you denied me, I want to just ask you, do you love me, Peter? It's from the Gospel of John where we heard the story of the Good Shepherd parable of the good shepherd and Jesus would ask Peter here if you love me feed my sheep I'm making you a sheep dog and an under shepherd for my flock I'm restoring you I want to talk to you about character character is what is being revealed 
when sudden, unexpected circumstances come upon us. I heard about a decade ago, the last time there was an earthquake in Japan, maybe it was the last 10 earthquakes ago, an article written by someone who was in an office tower when it began shaking and the windows began busting. Observed everything that happened, and when it was over, came back and had this reflection. I saw an office full of people. 90% of them froze in fear. Just froze or began to walk around aimlessly while the building shook. Then I saw about 5 or 10% absolutely fall on the ground in hysterical, mindless panic and become a danger to themselves and to others. And then I saw a few people who clearly identified each other as leaders and began to calm people down, point them towards the exits, and began to lead people. Two of them actually picked up someone who was having a hysterical fit and directed others to help that person calm down and lead them out. And upon reflecting what he had experienced, he did a little study on human behavior when sudden stress and fear and life-threatening circumstances occur. That apparently it is a, there's a statistical reality here. That the majority of us will tend to freeze. That some of us will absolutely become useless in fear and catatonia and panic. And that a handful of others will find themselves super alert with time slowing down. They often do identify the other ones who are not only keeping their marbles, but are suddenly able to rise to this occasion and do things they never knew they had in them. And that's what people will say. I never, ever knew I had this in me. And he was saying, the thing that surprised me the most is that one of the people who was on the floor acting like a child and was useless was our boss. So that someone who had the positional authority at a moment of crisis, revealed a different kind of character trait. And others had come forward and become leaders. It's what we do under pressure, that we have different character traits under pressure. And what we mean by character is a set of predisposed habits and tendencies in yourself that will often be revealed when sudden pressure comes upon you, right? the real you. I'm careful to say the real you, because we're more complex than that, right? But something about you that's only shown either when a stressful, sudden emergency happens, or how you behave when no one's looking and you have no accountability. Right? Those are the two things that will tend to reveal aspects of ourselves. So, Henry Finston Perry, please give us a video called New York Subway Hero. City subway. It's hard enough finding someone who will give up his seat to a stranger, let alone be willing to give up his life for one. The train was coming in like, like, like that. It happened just. 50-year-old Wesley Autry, a construction worker and Navy veteran, was standing on a subway platform with his two little girls when, right in front of them, a man started having a seizure. 
kind of stumble and over his own feet and fall backwards. I see the train coming, but the train is so close, I'm like, what do I do? Wesley jumped onto the tracks and thought if he could just lie on top of the man, keep him from flailing, maybe the train would roll right over both of them. The clearance was exactly 21 inches. Wesley and the man, 20 and a half. No way the train can stop before this gentleman could get him, get him up off the tracks. So he covered him with his body and pushed him down to a point where the train wouldn't hit his head and held him down under the tracks while the train came and rolled right over to the top. It gave Wesley's children the scare of their young lives. I thought he was going to get killed. And Wesley, the scare of his too. I'm like talking to him, sir, you can't move. I got two kids up here looking for the father to come back. I don't know you, you don't know me, but listen, don't panic. You know, I'm here to save you. As for the guy Wesley saved, he's 20-year-old Cameron Hollander. And other than a few scrapes and bruises, his father says he's doing fine. Mr. Autry's instinctive and selfish act saved our sins. You know, the word hero gets thrown around a lot nowadays. What a better way to say it to start off the new year than to save, save a life. <laughs> nice to be reminded of what one really looks like. Steve Hartman, CBS News, New York. Here's a New Year's resolution for you. Save someone's life. That's a good way to start your day. And see, people have no idea, usually, what they will do. We don't, you wish you'd be that. You hope you'd be that. And you really don't know. We don't know. And even if we were once a hero in a past stressful situation, we don't actually know if on the next one we'll have this kind of that kind of heroism. And then you reflect afterwards. There's that reflection afterwards. Often people like this, and this is by no means the only circumstance like this, you will hear people say things like, well, I just thought this is what your average decent fellow citizen would do for... So, like that, people reflect and say, I didn't feel anything heroic come over me. I just felt, holy crap, a person in need, I'm here to help and, and do it. And then afterwards they realize... Yeah, that, that was extraordinarily dangerous. Or other people will reflect quietly in their hearts and say, I used to have an opinion of myself um, that I was higher and better than the average to the point where I would say, Lord, the rest of these schmucks will desert you. I won't. Because I know I would even die for you. I feel that in me. And uh, you don't know until the stress comes which something in your character is going to be revealed. Really good intentions. Really, really sincere devotion for Jesus. And then when his life, he felt threatened that someone identified him and said, aren't you one of the disciples? That's all it was. I thought you were one of his followers. That was enough to have him say, no, no, I don't even know the guy. And we know about the self-reflection but it says he ran away after that third denial. He ran away and hid himself and cried bitterly, cried tears of shame and sorrow. And it's over that that this little scene emerges. Because when Jesus died, at this moment, there's no doctrine of the resurrection yet. 
There's no sense that, that's okay, in a minute we're going to be part of the church and take over the Roman Empire and change human history and I will be remembered as the first pope by at least half of the Christians will acknowledge this. I know that's coming. He knew nothing of this. What he knew is that his hopes and dreams for the future died on that cross and if he didn't hide his sorry rear end, he was going to be next. When you lose all your dreams, they go back to old habit patterns, right? Because... Go back to where you were, fishing with the guys in the Sea of Galilee. This is where he went. And it is when he had been called onto the shore by that mysterious stranger, and when the stranger suggested that since they'd caught nothing, try just offshore here, casting your net on the other side like this guy knows something about fishing. And they pull up 153 fish, and they realize this is, this is the master. And Jesus sups with them. He provides food for them. And they have a time where they're eating together and it says, none of them dared ask him who he was. Because they all knew in their hearts it was the Lord. So if they knew it was the Lord, why were they saying we should ask? Why did they feel none of them dared ask who are you? Well, Jesus revealed himself to them, and then we get this moment where he calls Peter aside and asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And, you know, Peter says, you know, you know, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Three times. And after he says it the third time, he says, follow me, like I asked you to. Follow me. And remember when you said you would die for me? I'm going to give you that chance. Because when you were a young guy, you could go wherever you wanted to go. But there's going to come a time in your future when people are going to take you where you don't want to go. Follow me to that same place. Jesus humbles him. Presumably this is semi-public. These other disciples are overhearing this. I like that scene better. There's a little bit of surgery, emotional surgery here putting his finger on the shame. You know, the thing about ego and the thing about pride is the higher you climb, the harder you fall, right? He accused all the others of being weakling runaways, but I won't. I'll stay with you. So maybe you need a little public humility there. Sometimes shame is a huge teaching moment if we face our own sense that we had talked ourselves up this high and we failed. And you hear yourself saying prayers like, God, help me never, ever, ever be like that again. Have you ever had times like that? Have you ever been ashamed of something that it sticks with you the rest of your life? I have one like that. There's lots of crap I've done in my life. I'll tell you one that really, really sticks to me. I'll give you two. And they have to do with my adolescence. Because I've matured since then, and I'm really together now. But I had two very good childhood friends that we grew up with as kids. Until grade nine. And in grade nine, they were not cool enough for me. Because there was another group that I wanted to hang around with that were much, much cooler. And I betrayed these two childhood friends. 
I made fun of them. I called them down in front of this other group, and I stopped hanging out with them because I was personally ashamed of them, because I was insecure. Insecure, and you'd suck up to this group. And all my life, it has bugged me to this day that I did that to them. One of them didn't get it, but I know that another one did. I know that another one knew that I was too good for them. And I don't have childhood friends. I don't have friendships, because I cut them off that I wish I had. The other one is making fun of a special needs kid. When my sister was like that. Because the group was making fun. So I did too. And I had one friend who grew up in a group home. And he defended her. And he called us all what we were. What are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you acting like this? And I should have known better. To this day I can still see where I was. How I talked. Because the group, you know, is going to fit into the group. So, the teaching moment of shame. So you take yourself out for that darn good talking to. You hear those prayers. God, give me the strength, the faith, the courage, the change, and to do right. And to face up to opposition. It's a very important stage in personal growth. Is to face up to our failings, to reflect upon what they reveal about us. I've joked around here a few times that one of my purposes in life is to make sure I offend everybody, at least some of the time. It's an equal opportunity offense. And <laughs> let me know. I have an affirmative action program. If I have not offended you enough lately, I can do about <clears throat> ten in a row. But the truth in that is this, that half the time when we're offended, it's our pride that's hurt. And what is revealed is there's a teaching moment here. Why am I sensitive to that? Why did that get to me? What is that about me? That is such an important part of self-development and learning about what we are really like. And then reasonably, not with self-hatred and self-loathing and feeling I'm weak and I can't, ever succeed, or any of the self-talk that's destructive, but with reasonable and responsible action, choose to learn and to turn and to improve and to grow. That is why character formation is often described this way. It is simply the method of replacing bad habits with good habits. But either way, you're going to be grooving into habits. The sooner we learn the habit of Christ-likeness and of personal integrity, the better. If we want to establish new habits that create integrity between the outside person and the inside. So that what is outside reflects what's honest on the inside. The ego-based face, the need to fit in with the group by putting somebody else down, that's a lack of integrity. But what is inside and outside? And then we have the blessing of a good conscience and a joyful spirit. But what happens when the failure is not one like, I thought I was a great leader and then I was useless when the building began to shake? What if, as I just shared, our failure deeply hurts another person? Hurts another person. 
so that you're ashamed to face that person. Have you ever been in that circumstance? Has anybody not been in a circumstance where you have been ashamed to face someone? Especially someone that you have hurt. That's an incredibly vulnerable place to be. And you can be righteously condemned. You can have finger wagging and you have to cap in hand agree that that was me. But how incredible life-changing it can be when at that moment of personal shame you are given grace and gentleness and mercy. I have had people like that in my life who, when I had egg all over my face, didn't even look at that and say, oh, there I know, I've got a teaching moment with that guy. But actually had compassion on my shame and came humbly to that place and gave life-giving mercy and grace. Because everything in John here is rhetorical. What Jesus said. What Jesus was doing is saying, Peter, I know you love me. I know you love me. I know you're confused about how you could have let me down because you talked yourself into something you weren't. I know you love me. I need you and I need everybody else to just hear it. Feed my sheep. Why? Because before you have learned what it is to be a sinner and a failure, you cannot go into the world and feed people the gospel. Unless you understand your need to receive love and forgiveness, you cannot preach the message to others, Peter. <clears throat> and I am not just reconciling with you. I am restoring you to a better position. Better, with more self-knowledge. To be a stronger leader. A, a strong enough disciple that you will be able to die for me like you prophesy. Well, I want to say to you that a lot of work, I was thinking about you, Doug, too. I was thinking of uh, pastoral work and I was thinking of your board work the last four years. And I think how much of our work is reconciliation? It's just trying to bring things back to health from all the many ways we go sideways. And there's one person, all of us, going sideways and hurting another person. And so much of life we do, we want to build and move ahead, and we can and we should, but we have to have the foundation of reconciliation first. And what this is teaching is that's the normal state of affairs. Do not get impatient and say, I've had enough of you disciples letting me down. I need winners from now forward. I need a bunch of Donald Trumps from now on. <laughs> I don't know why that came out of my mouth. Please pray for my soul. There's an irony about the word winner, because I do not see him as one. But, um, but I, I love him in the Lord. I love him encased in my faith. If I come near him, I will squirt theoretical love at him. <laughs> While keeping healthy boundaries. Healthy boundaries. <laughs> so a lot of our work... Thank you, I need to come attention, cut the tension a bit here. A lot of our work is just reconciling 
and, and, and making the foundation solid again for a few steps forward before we make a couple backwards again. And then a few more steps forward and a couple back where we're restoring one another and forgiving one another and healing one another. So, in my weirdness this week, um, I did some research on the Hutterite community. I'm studying German history and the history of the German diaspora, and among the most fascinating communities were the Anabaptist communities, and especially the Hutterite communities, because unlike other Anabaptists, they're probably the most successful communists in the world, because their, their colonies have continued to exist for about four or five hundred years, 1530. So uh, I found a fantastic movie, little half-hour documentary made by the Canadian Film Board, your tax dollars working for you in 1963, before any of you were born. Um, but that's okay, because the Mennonites haven't changed, or the Mennonites have a little bit. But the Hutterites haven't changed much in 400 years, so this little documentary moment I'm about to give you uh, will be very relevant. So just listen to the spirit of this. The question, before we hit the Hutterite philosophy, the question is about ownership in a community setting. And the question is, what do you have in your communes, in your colonies, that those of us who don't live this way don't have? Like, what does this lifestyle give you? What can you own in the, in the colony? Well, anything right in my house, that's my possession, which ain't much. We get a hope chest when we're 15, that's mine. Nobody can take it away from me. But outside of that, anything in the colony, I couldn't very well say it's mine, it belongs to the whole colony. What do you think, by living in a colony, you have that the people who don't live in such a tight you would have? I couldn't get that question. Well, Glad. This, uh, this colony business was started, I don't know how many years ago. 1530. Well, Jacob Hutter started, but even before that, the apostles started it. Act the second is really where our life comes in. Well, keeping all things common, nothing in the world. That's how it started, and that's the way we want to keep it. That's the way the whole world is supposed to be. Our home is supposed to be in time to come in heaven. But on this earth, you have to love thy neighbor. And how can you show love? If you don't live together, do things for one another. If one is sick, take care of them. If you can't work, let somebody else do it. If you don't get along with your neighbor, you don't have to look him in the face every morning or say hello to him. You could leave. But in the colony, you see all the members. And if you have some misunderstanding amongst yourself, well, you can't go on living and hating him. You have to get things right. Go back where you started from. Is that right? She's telling him. <laughs> Isn't that right? How do people live in Calgary? <laughs> yeah, you walk away from your neighbor. The line that struck me was just, how can you love someone if you don't live with them? Wow. That's a very different way to think. We are called to love one another. But how can you love if you don't live together? Now you're thinking, well, I'm not going to live on a farm in Alberta somewhere where we're all sharing bunkhouses and stuff. No. You think you can live in the middle of Calgary. You can be living jam-packed together. Have you seen the houses and the size of the lots? 
biggest prairies on the face of the earth, and you got a six-foot-wide lot between the houses, and that's spreading here. Go to the Western communities. <laughs> but you don't know your neighbor. You don't even know who lives across the street. You are, in fact, not living together. You are biologically and economically existing side by side and mutually exploiting each other in the wonders of the division of labor and the use of currency. But you don't know anybody. So what was struck here is, what have we got that you don't have? We've got a community of people who know that if I have an argument with you, I'm going to see you tomorrow, and I'm going to have to work it out. I'm going to have to feel stupid and ashamed and face you on the farm and have to work it out and maybe say I'm sorry. And when I do, I'm going to need you to say, I know you love me. I know we're family. I know that was just a mood swing. You were afraid of dying. So I get that. So, sudden crisis comes upon us. I don't know when the last time something like that's happened in your life. Sudden crisis happens and suddenly something is revealed about you and something is seen by others in you. And we're all in this together. We're all in this together where our character may suddenly shine in ways that we could say, I don't know, I just jumped on a guy and held him down and said, don't move, buddy, I want my kids to see me again. I don't even know what came over me. Or I can say to in earshot, within earshot of Jesus. I never knew that guy. Now, it is love. It is knowing that you are loved. I loved your prayer, Aaron. Thank you for that. That to know that we are loved is hero-making. You definitely see that when you see mothers loving over their vulnerable little children. Love and being loved and needing to be loved for someone is one of the most hero-making character traits. And Jesus just wants Peter to keep growing in his love. And love is not about necessarily liking everybody every day, but it is about putting on your boots and walking over the neighbor's house and going through the motions of saying, I'm sorry, I sinned against you, I need your grace. And there's nothing more lovely than the hugs and the tears and the kisses that come when you receive grace and mercy and forgiveness. We're called then to live like Jesus. And when we do, we will live in that same tension where some people will love the light that shines from us and others will hate us. And the only thing that will make us not a bunch of hypocrites and just another religious cult that gives religion a bad name is if we can't show what it is to forgive one another be able to say I'm sorry and to be able to say I love you again. That is why we've been called as the people who should be called the children of God. And in the Beatitudes, the people who are called the children of God are the peacemakers. Those who bring compassion and mercy. Those who bring justice and reconciliation. Those who create conditions for love to repair and rebuild the foundations. That is being Christ-like. That is what it is to follow me, as Jesus said, follow me, be imitators then, of me, of my heart. And I think this is our, our value when Caitlin gave us that new verb a few weeks ago, that 
we can be busy being placemakers, making a place like that little commune where family and friendship and it's safe to be embarrassed and ashamed because the love is stronger. Let's make places like that. Let's create environments of peace and reconciliation and second chances and joyful friendships and be family because we are the children of God. Amen. Let's have a hymn.